You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. I was first diagnosed in February of last year. Just finding out that you have, you know, cancer at 32 is hard anyways. When I started calling um, some people um, and telling them about it, some of the things that were said made me more disappointed at a time when I was already vulnerable. Um, and so I decided at that time to stop telling people. I actually started treatment that same day because I was diagnosed with stage four. I would spend about six hours getting the chemo. It was a lot of visits. Um, and so I ended up going to a few of those visits alone, which is a hard thing. Jen, uh, she made a point to come out, to come and spend time with me on some of those visits. To be honest, I don't remember the conversations we had, <laughs> but I know there was a lot of talking. I don't know what I was talking about. She probably did most of the talking. I, I think about that all the time because I think about going to some of those visits alone. Um, that was really hard. And so having her there was good. The thing about this community for me is that they've, they've just been there for me. I had been going to the church for a long time when I got sick, but the level to which they were there for me made, made me feel like I'd been going to the church for ages. There was a point where I was just living like hour to hour, and I was just like, let me just make it through this hour, let me make it through the next hour. I remember telling Ben one day that I was feeling like a feather, because um, I, I just had no strength of my own. And, um, and he said to me, well, you know, a feather is also really strong. That, that meant a lot. I didn't want to go to church because I didn't understand why God would let his people go through something like this. And, but because everyone at church would still call me and still pour out their love to me, I would come to church even when I, I didn't really have the energy. And it was just to spend time with those people, not because of the building, I had a hard time singing the praise songs because I didn't believe in it anymore. But it was just to spend time with the people. So last week I had uh, a CT scan, my first real CT scan since I finished um, my treatment um, and it was 100% clear. So I am in 100% remission now. It, it literally, literally, literally feels like a miracle. (laughs) There might be some suffering that we're going to encounter and it's just for us to stay strong through it and try and believe and surround ourselves with people that love us. You know, that that we're gonna hopefully get through it or whatever the outcome is, at least we're surrounded with people that love us and in the meantime just live our lives so we have no regrets. Hi guys, I'm Jen Fisher. I'm the associate pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. Around this time last year, I was still learning how to be a pastor. I, uh, 
I had just been promoted into this strange role that I never imagined I'd find myself in. And last winter was the first few months of learning this because I'm always learning it. But uh, it felt like a pretty intense season of life at that time. And I know some of you guys have heard parts or all of my story before, but since we're in this season called Together in This and we're sharing these incredible stories of how Forefront has impacted the lives of people in our community, I wanted to reshare with you a little bit of my story and how I got to this point this morning. And uh, it actually overlaps with Mina's story, as you can see a little bit, too. So for me, I found this church back in 2007, just two weeks after I moved here uh, from Illinois to pursue a career in theater. And as I think back to those first few couple of years in New York in my early 20s with all the chaos and the highs and lows of life in your early 20s, especially in New York, I think about how Forefront was this consistent place of solace and peace and honestly just perspective that it gave me sitting in that community on Sunday mornings. And in 2011, after being kind of loosely plugged into the community, I was just returning to Brooklyn from a theater contract position out in California. And at that point in my life, I realized that my time in theater was, it was coming to an end. That I didn't have the passion for it that I once did. Um, that my priorities and my values were shifting. And I didn't have the love for the industry that I once loved so much like I used to. I was looking for something with more meaning in it for me, but I had no idea what that was yet. And I had been through kind of a rough season. I had had this break from the city, right? And I'd been through a breakup with a boy. And I'd done some traveling, and I had a pretty great season of therapy under my belt. And all of this was just sort of the perfect storm of challenging life experiences to push me into this new place spiritually. And so when I got back to New York um, and Forefront Manhattan announced that they had hired this new guy to start a church in Brooklyn, they asked if there were people who wanted to be a part of the launch team and volunteer to help him and his family start that church. And so I raised my hand and, and said that, yeah, I wanted to be a part of it. I knew Brooklyn was where I wanted to be. And so I met Jonathan, who was going to be the lead pastor of this Brooklyn church, uh, in Madison Square Park one rainy day for that awkward pastor and new person conversation that we've had with some of you guys over the years, right? So awkward. <laughs> yeah. And um, But I told him all about kind of this, this experience that I had been through and how I knew like, where I was in my growth and I, how I had learned to forgive uh, and how I'd had, had a, how I'd learned to reevaluate my priorities and that community especially was something that was really important to me. And he told me about a friend of his that he had just recently met in Brooklyn when he moved there and that uh, he shared this kind of same value of, or value of community and kind of just living life together. And this friend of his showed up at their place one night when his gas, the gas was out on his stove because he just wanted to make mashed potatoes. And that was just kind of this example of what it looks like to just live life together, right? To show up at each other's homes, like family. And I thought for myself, like, yeah, I should meet this guy. It sounds like we're on the same page. Well, little did I know, much like John's story here, there's a little theme today, <laughs> um, when I would meet this guy a couple of months later at the first ever Forefront Brooklyn Christmas party at Jonathan and Juby's tiny little apartment, it's the first night I met Juby too, um, that he and I would hit it off in more ways than just that, and two years later, we were married. So for years, my husband Bobby and I, we had been in the same room together. We had gone to church together. We had, uh, we can flip through our Facebook photos and see that we were both at the same like Caleb Holly concerts or that we went, we were at these same Uganda trip fundraisers and we just never met each other. But so if you ask me how Forefront impacted my life, I met my husband because of Forefront. So 
shortly before we got engaged, as I sat down with Jonathan, I had another one of those awkward conversations again, but this time it was about work. Little did I know how Forefront was going to impact me in a whole other way. I was still looking for work that I could be passionate about. I had a contract that was about to end and it came back to the same old question and he asked me to describe for him uh, what my dream job would look like in New York at that time. And I don't remember what I said. I think I said something about like helping people and working with nonprofits or something. And he kind of laughed at me and he said something that I both feared and secretly hoped that he would say, which is that I had to work for the church. And so that, in short, is how I became the community director of Forefront Brooklyn. And if you're wondering, hmm, what's a community director? Well, that's a great question, because I had no idea either. <laughs> um, it's one of those roles that you just sort of figure out as you go, right? That's just kind of how church is in general, to be honest. And maybe you guys can relate to that. Maybe you've been in a season like that. You've you've been an entrepreneur or you've taken on some job that didn't exist before you took it or maybe it was just like a role that you took on in life like you learned what it meant to be a, a mother or a husband from other people's example or just from diving in head first right what I love about the passage that John just read for us from Paul is that Paul is this guy who just is completely into defining things for himself as well he is doing this job that Clearly, no one else has done before. He's basically starting this new religion, not even knowing that that's what the work is that he's doing. And people are calling him a heretic because he's basically making stuff up and figuring it out as he goes. And he's kind of egotistical, and you see him make a lot of mistakes. But what's so great about these epistles is that we get this glimpse of it as it all works out and, and what it looks like to really just kind of figure out how to love people and to serve them. And especially for Paul in this really specific context and time and history, right? I find a lot of encouragement in that because it's just as hard to figure out how to do this church thing here in our own context in Brooklyn over the last four years together. I got hired to work for the church a week before we launched here in Brooklyn and three weeks after that, do you guys remember that thing, Hurricane Sandy? That's when that happened. <laughs> and so my job went from like, oh, setting up signs on Sundays to mobilizing volunteers and, and partnering with nonprofits and giving out thousands of dollars to people who needed help. And um, it was really incredible, but that was just the start. From there, it's only grown. And when Jonathan was promoted to the role of senior pastor of both Forefront Brooklyn and Forefront Manhattan, which is where he is today with our Forefront Manhattan family, I was then promoted to the role of associate pastor, and a whole new journey began. This is also what I love about Paul as he's opening up the second letter to the Corinthians, because I feel like you're getting a bit here where you realize that Paul is in a new phase of his journey as well. We see him doing the practical stuff, right? He's making arrangements for a gift for the struggling churches in Jerusalem, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. We see him defending himself, trying to have these complicated interpersonal conversations, like we talked about last week. We, we see how many mistakes he makes, but this is the reality of God's kingdom breaking into earth. It's the hard work of expressing the gospel one person, one church at a time. And the single theme that we see running through all this, we get to see a glimpse of Paul's heart in it all. And I think what he's writing to himself here, just as much as to the churches, is that uh, God will comfort us in all of our troubles, big or small. And we will and should offer that same comfort to each other. This model is the life of Jesus, who suffered and was then comforted. And so just like the crucified Messiah, we are weak, and yet we live in God's power together. And this is the gospel message. So when Paul is opening up this letter here, he's turning this gospel message, this lens that he takes to view all suffering in the world, his, his own personal suffering and then his communal suffering as well, and he interprets it through this prayer of thanksgiving. So let's read it one more time. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I think it's not hard to figure out what the theme is of that passage. I stumbled over the word comfort, I think like 10 times in just five verses. Uh, and it's not really a word that clicked with me right away when I read it. Like comfort, I don't know. Why did Paul choose that word, not console or empathize? Why did he not use different words as he went through it? But I think as you get to know Paul a little bit better and you realize what his definition is of the word comfort, you start to understand that it makes a whole lot of sense. Because for Paul, comfort isn't just this word that means you take someone from a place of suffering back into a place of neutral. For him, it means something more like redemption or reconciliation. We see that for Paul, you go from a place of suffering to this place of new hope and new possibilities and new ways forward. That's what it really means. And Jesus, I think he often speaks about this in terms of forgiveness, whereas Paul, this guy who's really into defining things for himself, right? He's internalized this concept of forgiveness as something that looks more like redemption. Because for Paul, being forgiven by Jesus doesn't just mean that he was washed clean of his sins. It meant that he became this entirely new creation in Christ. This man of new hope, of new foundation, of new aspirations that fuel him to do this incredible work of spreading the gospel love that he's found through Jesus with others. But why, I wonder, is Paul so passionate about this idea of suffering and comfort at the beginning of this letter? I think there's a couple reasons for that. First, it's pretty clear that Paul's writing this after going through something pretty tough. He goes on into the next verses and he talks about this kind of hard period of suffering. We're not entirely sure what it is. I think some scholars think that maybe he's referring to some riots or stonings that he experienced in Asia, which fair enough, that sounds awful. Some people think that maybe he like, faced some kind of illness that almost killed him because he said things like he felt a sentence of death within him. And when Mina describes for me what it felt like to be going through chemotherapy treatments, she talks about being a part of the world of the dead. Like she couldn't do the ordinary things in life because she was so exhausted. Um, and I feel like Paul's describing something similar to that. Whatever the circumstances may be, he's obviously exhausted and beyond what he feels like is the capacity of his human limits. But in his suffering, we also see him referring over and over again to the comfort that he's found in Christ. And this, I can only believe, is fueled by this foundation he's built in his relationship with Christ through his own faith journey, this transformative experience that makes his identity in Christ this very real, very personal thing for him. And did you know, it's actually kind of controversial for the Corinthians that Paul goes around calling himself an apostle because an apostle is supposed to be someone who actually like, knew the person of Jesus and walked with him. But Paul, for him, this is not a controversial thing at all because he had this, this transformative experience that he talks about in 1 Corinthians. He calls it the resurrected Christ appeared to him. He truly believes that he saw Jesus. And so you can read all about this conversion experience in Acts chapter 9. The man was literally knocked off his horse and he was blinded for three days when he encountered Jesus along the side of the road. 
And the result was that this guy, whose name used to be Saul, who was this great enemy of the faith and who would go around uh, pursuing and persecuting Jews, uh, he was now filled with the Holy Spirit, was baptized, was renamed Paul, got his vision back, took on this whole new identity and became one of the most influential leaders in preaching and spreading the gospel to the world. That transformative, mystical experience that he had on the side of the road, this was a very real and tangible thing for Paul. And he spends his life making sense of it and helping others to make sense of it. And Christo, he calls it, and Christo, a phrase that Paul uses some 41 times throughout his letters. It's this idea of an organic unity of believing that God is present, that the resurrected Christ is present inside each one of us. The author N.T. Wright says, we should not miss the sense throughout this letter that Paul's deep experience of pain and sorrow has led him to a new vision of God. And that vision, shaped by the Messiah, is a vision of light and love. Light enough to see how to move forward from tragedy to glory, love enough to know that one is held in the divine embrace, which will not only comfort in the present, but remain faithful and victorious into the future. I love that. So we read here the beginning of 2 Corinthians. We are looking at Paul believing that what is true for the Messiah is also true for his people. That just as Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and on the third day he was resurrected, all in accordance with the scriptures, so too Jesus suffered and was comforted, and so too we suffer and we are comforted. Paul himself is this beautiful example of someone who's been comforted by Christ and then takes that and comforts others through it. Did you guys know that this like, church in Corinth is only like this ragtag bunch of 40 people at the most? And yet he writes to them as if they are the most important people in the world. He's fully aware that life won't be easy, that we will share in the sufferings of Christ, but that we will also be comforted in God's power and strength that we can find through Jesus as well. And I think above all else, what Paul wants us to understand, just as much as he wanted that little bunch of people in Corinth to understand, is that we, as the body of Christ here on earth, we are called to continue to comfort others in their suffering on God's behalf, to love and care and breathe for one another, to be God's presence to one another. And this is what brings me back to Mina's story this morning. Because in February of last year, I was knee-deep trying to figure out what it meant to be a pastor, what that was supposed to mean, what I should say, what I shouldn't, when I should listen, when I should speak. It was all very challenging in a lot of ways. And I realized quickly that I do things different than the men who were coaching me, and I didn't have any women mentors to help me figure out what different meant for me. And so during that week that I was planning to go visit or sit with Mina during chemotherapy, which was kind of looming over me. I remember it so clearly because it was still the all-time hardest week that I've ever had on staff. That week alone, I had, I think, four people come up to me with really hard stuff, like depression, abuse, a lover's quarrel, mental illness, and I was emotionally exhausted and in way over my head. I didn't know how to draw boundaries for myself or for others. And so throughout all of that, at the end of that week, I had in my head that I was going to go do this thing with this person who I barely knew and sit with her in probably the lowest point of her whole life. So I didn't want to take in my anxiety or my stress to, into that room with Mina. And so <laughs> I'm being so vulnerable, it's embarrassing. But <laughs> I called a friend that morning, I asked her to pray for me, and then I gave myself a little dance party. Um, Taylor Swift's Shake It Out may have been played on repeat a couple of times. Just had to shake it out. Yep. 
And Mina says that she doesn't remember what we talked about the first time that I went to chemo with her, but <laughs> I do, because I showed up with People magazines and cookies, and I didn't have any idea of what to say or what to do, but I figured that's what the girls did on Sex and the City when Samantha was going through chemo. So, <laughs> so at the very least, we could like unite under what Beyonce is wearing that week. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> I did, to be fair though, I did take a copy of Seeking God's Face, the prayer book that we use, because um, I knew that a pastor was supposed to do at least that much. <laughs> and since that time, let me reassure you, since that time, I have come a long way. <laughs> I, I, like Paul, am super into defining things for myself at this point. And for me, the working definition that I now have that helps me filter everything I do is that my job as a pastor to, is to simply love people and bring them into the presence of Jesus. And so... Sometimes that looks like a deep theological conversation, but sometimes it looks, looks like just being present with someone as poison drips into their veins. You know, I think the, one of the many paradoxes of the Christian faith is that the grace of God is often most keenly experienced in what seems to be the worst of times, not the best of times. But as Paul teaches us, God gives comfort not just so that we might be comforted, so that we can experience inner peace and enlightenment, but so that we might become comforters for others. The comfort that God gives becomes this gift that God wants us to pass along to others who are experiencing pain. And you know, Paul talks about that, this idea of patient endurance as we, we look to Christ in the midst of our suffering, and I really think that that's what Mina was talking about. She figured it out being present in community with us, feeling in this completely dark place, the world of the dead, and yet she would drag herself to church because she could feel God's presence in all of you in our community, reaching out to her and caring for her. She said that she sat in these chairs for months hearing that God is in us, that the resurrected Christ is in us, but didn't truly come to understand what that really meant until she hit rock bottom and had to figure it out for herself. And this is why I love, love, love Mina's story, because it is this beautiful example of what it means to be in community with each other. We get to breathe for each other when we can't breathe. We get to offer resources until someone can get back on their own two feet. We get to be this bridge that takes someone from this place of awful suffering into this place of redemption, of new hope. And the possibilities are endless when we do this. I think back to, um, to the time in Mina's journey, she told me that she really struggled to let me just do something simple like organizing a meal train for her because something as ordinary as cooking her own food or making like feeding herself was something she didn't want to admit that she couldn't do anymore and so when she finally got vulnerable vulnerable enough to let me do it I was so grateful because her small group, which she felt like she was barely a part of, but her small group, which was the Prospect Heights Park Slope group that was being led by Steve and Lindsay Breda at the time, they responded so generously. They organized not one or two, but several meals for her, and they organized people with cars who, drew, who drove all the way out to Long Island to drop off these meals. And it was this huge gesture to Mina that meant so much more than just being fed. Angela and Lorette talked about it last week in their video as well, how impactful it was when people showed up to feed them when Angela was in the hospital. We sometimes forget that these simple gestures, these simple acts of love that we do for each other can be so incredibly huge in spreading the gospel to each other and being God's presence to each other. 
It's this beautiful reminder that we all have the ability to pastor, that we are all called to be pastors because every single one of us has the ability to love people and to bring them into the presence of Jesus. And for me, I think the best part of Mina's story is actually what you don't see in the video. It's the continuation of it all. Because just as Paul talks about when we are comforted, we then learn to comfort others. And Mina has taken that and ran with it. And she went from not wanting to tell anybody in her life, people that you know she's known her whole life, to suddenly, almost towards the end of chemo, she is posting about it on social media. And I'm like, what's going on, Mina? She somehow, not somehow, she found the strength at that point then, to start reaching out to, to a support network. And not only that, but creating a support network for others. She started blogging about um, her experience of going through treatments. And she started this group on meetup.com called the Young Adults Cancer Collective, which she's still leading. It's this place for young people who are suffering from cancer to come together and have a space to be vulnerable and to feel supported and loved. And she didn't stop there, because now Mina is in this place of like realizing how much she loves authentic community and wanting to touch people and wanting to comfort people in all parts of their lives. And so she, um, towards the end of her chemo, at the end of her chemo actually, when she was in that horrible in-between place where she had to wait to find out if the treatments were gonna actually get rid of the cancer, um, she decided to do a little bit of traveling. At that point, she was ready to leave the world of the dead and come back to the world of the living. And so when she came back from traveling, she was feeling courageous and brave, and she decided to go camping one weekend all by herself, something she'd never done before. And as she lay there looking up at the stars, realizing that God was present all along, she looked around and saw that there were no other black people there. And for Mina, she thought, I want my people to experience what I have experienced, being out here amongst the outdoors, finding God in nature. And so she organizes now this group called the Black Outdoors and Adventures Group, uh, again through Meetup. And I'm so excited because as a church, we get to come around people like Mina who are leading and creating community and pastoring people in whatever passion they have. And so we were able to give her the office space, the Forefront NYC office space a couple of weeks ago, so she could host a meet and greet for anyone who is interested in, in being a part of a supporting community to, to try courageous new things. And um, she's had people coming up to her because she's been organizing swim lessons, and she had a family come up to her and say how grateful they were, because now they have the ability to swim together as a family and to spend time together as a family. And I mean, come on. What is more... This, how could this not be the gospel? I mean, this is the message exactly of what Paul is trying to get across. This woman who was once comforted by community and is now creating community to comfort and, and allow others to grow and thrive. Ugh, I freaking love it. <laughs> and this, my friends, this is why we are doing this campaign. This is why we are asking you to please partner with us, to give generously, so that stories like this might continue to unfold. And I want to ask Dave and Nate to come back up and to get ready to, to play for us. And as I tell you a little bit more about this together in this campaign, you know, as John mentioned, we need to raise $250,000 by May 22nd. We need you to pledge to raise that at least, to partner with us in, in raising that throughout the next year and a half. Because our underlying goal in all of this is to, to shift our patterns of giving, not just to have you give a one-time generous gift, which please, please consider that as well, but to set up a recurring donation and truly partner with us. Because here's the thing, Mina's story happened over the course of two years. Mine happened over the course of five plus years. John and Visha's happened over several years. If we hadn't had the consistency of Forefront being here every Sunday through the highs and lows of our lives, 
we never would have had these stories unfold. And I promise you that there are several more stories amongst this room right now that you're not going to ever hear about, or maybe you won't hear about for years to come. And I promise you that there could even be a story inside of you that's waiting to come out. But the only way we're going to get the chance to find that out is if we partner with what God is doing through this community and financially create the resources to be able to keep doing this thing as a community together, to keep ushering in God's presence into Brooklyn. And so finally, I want to just take a moment to personally thank all of you. And I'm dedicating this part to Nina because she keeps telling me to not apologize for this. When, I, when you guys give, you also help to pay my salary. And so what I want to point out about that today is that I was able to sit with Mina in the middle of a work day because you guys have ordained me to do those things on your behalf. She had no one else to go with her. And she didn't feel comfortable talking to anyone else that she knew. And yet she felt comfortable to come up to her pastors, to talk to me and Ben, Jonathan and Mira, and I can't tell you how many times that happens on a Sunday and throughout the week that you're never going to know about. But people who feel like they have no one else to turn to, nowhere else to go, feel comfortable talking to us because you have ordained us to do these things on your behalf. And I thank you for that because you've given me the opportunity to find work that I'm passionate about and to do something that, that I can care deeply about and that I get to be a person that people come to when they have no one else. I thank you for that privilege. So finally, I just want to ask you guys to consider, as we pray together and we take these next couple of moments to close out, Dave's going to tell you a little bit about the song that he's about to play. And I want us to just sit for a moment for you to open up those brochures that we put on your seats, to take a look at that pledge card. If you have questions, you can come talk to us. Uh, John will be back there at Connection Point after service. He'd be happy to tell you more about it. Just consider how you might invest in people like Mina and people like me, like John, like Dave, how you might be a part of this community with us by giving a gift and making a recurring donation. Because when you invest in this church, you are providing comfort for the suffering and hope for the hopeless, and I thank you guys so much for that. So let's pray, and then we'll take some time and we'll collect the offering, okay? Father God, I thank you so much for this community. I thank you for the journeys that are unfolding all around us. I thank you for the ways in which you find us wherever we are and you keep knocking on doors and creating opportunities and pushing past our insecurities and our fears until we finally turn to you, Lord. And God, I pray that every single one of us in here would have the courage and the vulnerability to just keep turning to you, God. Finding your presence in the people in this room, finding your presence in this community. And I thank you so much for the opportunity to serve and to lead and to be a part of what you're doing here. I pray that we would get to do this for many more years to come, Lord, and that you would meet us wherever we are in our insecurities about giving, that you would give us this overwhelming sense of comfort and peace, that you're in every part of our finances as well, that we can trust you, Lord. I thank you so much for that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.